Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that um, we have recorded in Scripture the testimony of John and the other disciples. We thank you that you have given us such a rich picture of Jesus in all his glory. Father, we do thank you that Jesus was willing um, to come, to become human, to walk among his people in the flesh in order to bring the hope of salvation um, to fruition, to make a people for himself. Father, we do thank you most of all that Jesus revealed himself, um, that he was willing to to speak and interact um, with his people. Father, we ask you to use this word to encourage and strengthen us. We ask you to help us think deeply on not just how we are to move forward from the passage, but to think deeply on the one who has called us and given us new life. Father, we just ask you to help us to trust Jesus fully, um, to make his mission our mission, um, moment to moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we get started, I made a mistake earlier in the week, um, and didn't provide an outline, and so all you have is lines. But since I went through some effort to do it, and it, 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 it kind of is alliterative and stuff, and I don't normally do that, I thought I'd give it to you. So we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to talk about a couple things. So first, I'm going to give you the first point. The first point is going to be, we have found the Messiah. Um, it's an allusion to John 1. I thought that was kind of clever, but I'm usually not that clever, so don't get too ahead of me. Um, there's going to be three points under that. It's going to be Cana of Galilee, distance in the relationship, and an exemplar, so C-D-E. 
And then we're going to have point two. We've all received grace upon grace, another allusion to John 1. Water and wine are going to be the subpoints. And point three is going to be we have seen his glory. Again, allusion to John 1. And we're going to talk about first place, glory revealed, and heading to Jerusalem. So FGH. So not your typical AAAA or CC. It's, this is ABCD kind of thing. Anyway. I tried. Anyway. Okay. So let's jump right in um, at, into the story at chapter 2, verse 1, under the heading, We Found the Messiah, See for Cana of Galilee. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Brian preached last week and introduced us to Nathaniel, um, the one who declared Jesus to be the Son of God, the King of Israel. Um, and we find out at the end of John's Gospel uh, that Cana is actually Nathaniel's hometown, even though it doesn't mention it here. Um, at this point, all we really need to know is that Cana is a poor, unmemorable village in Galilee. It doesn't stand out as anything. It's not a special place. It's not Jerusalem. It's about as inauspicious a place as you can think of to begin to try to make a name for oneself, uh, to stand out or start a public ministry. So right from the start, we see that our story begins um, on the third day. And guesses at the significance of this detail abound. Um, you can ask four theologians. You'll get five different answers of what the meaning is. Um, that's just how it is. Uh, some people see a week's worth of time counted out in chapter 2 um, with varying different significance, relationships to the Old Testament. Um, some count this three days as the end of either six or seven days, starting in the midpoint of chapter 1. Um, and so you have all these different ideas. You also have others who find allegorical significance. They're looking at the three days, and what they see is you know, Christ's burial and resurrection in those three days. I'll just cut through it all and tell you kind of what I read in the passage, and that is that's all sort of going away from where the passage is going. John simply is connecting the story with Nathaniel. Nathaniel is the one who made this confession. Nathaniel's hometown is where Jesus finds himself for this wedding. And so we can question numbers, but we need to understand we can read scripture, and we don't need some intense numerical challenge ahead of us in order to understand it properly. So, uh, one thing that does seem to stand out, even though it's not explicit in the text, is that Jesus' mother is likely more than a guest. We're going to see this more when it gets to verse 5. Um, but this combined with the fact that Jesus and his disciples are invited uh, probably means that the wedding was a family member, whether a distant relation or something like that. But the text doesn't say that, and so we're not going to depend on it. But it is a likely idea. Um, a final point maybe setting the setting again under the Cana of Galilee. Um, so the wedding as a setting for the first miracle of Jesus is, is a nice biblical touch. Jesus is drawing us into a little bit of the picture of creation. In creation, you have the first man and woman called together, called to be fruitful, and we have right at the outset of Jesus' ministry, he starts it at a wedding. He, he starts it in this celebration of God's creative work. And that's going to feed into all that we talk about for the rest of the time. So moving on to the next point, distance in the relationship. So with a little bit of setting out of the way, um, we move right into conflict. This is a narrative. It has conflict. So John writes, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
So running out of the wine at a wedding would have been a pretty shameful thing. It was the responsibility of the groom, the bridegroom, to take care of the feast preparations. And so for him to allow this festival to happen and to run out of wine, it doesn't say good things about the prospects for this marriage. So it's a pretty shameful thing. Um, possibility that there might have even been legal ramifications, depending on you know, who you talk to, whether or not he could be actually penalized monetarily for allowing a festival not to go forward. That's how important hospitality was in this particular culture. Um, anyway, Mary brings this situation to Jesus, and we have to ask, what was she expecting? Um, Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet. This is going to be the first one. So she doesn't necessarily have you know, this idea that Jesus is just going to do a miracle here. Um, so what is she thinking? And to look at that, we really have to start thinking, you know, she has spent time with Jesus. She spent his whole life with him, um, getting to know him. I'd be willing to say she's probably seen him be more dependable than most other people. Not most, any other people. He's shown himself to have wisdom to have perseverance, to have strength. She has every reason to trust his insight and his judgment. I mean, she heard the angelic pronouncements. She knows how his birth and upbringing went down. Uh, beyond that, she's been around him and his new disciples. She's traveling with them. She's almost certainly heard from them about his baptism by John, if not been privy to it herself. She can see the effect he has on his inner circle. Mary seems to be suggesting that now, it's as good as time as any to finally demonstrate who he is to a wider world. And if we see nothing amiss in Mary's suggestion, they have no wine, we should at least take pause when we hear Jesus' response. So first, there's his address to her. He says, woman. Um, now, that's a perfectly fair translation um, of the Greek, but it does lack in the emotional range department. Uh, to me, it actually sounds a little rude. I don't know many people I would go up to and say, hey, woman. Um, worse yet, hey, lady, why are you bugging me with this? This come off as rude in English. Um, depending on where you were raised, maybe ma'am would be better. But in the South, I don't think it really plays out right. That's still a little bit too informal. This is a formal greeting. It's polite. Um, but while not rude, generally, it's not the way one would address their mother. Even for an adult, this is just not the way you talk to your mother. And the rest of his statement is definitely a rebuke. He sees Mary has said something inappropriate, is calling for something inappropriate, and he puts her in her place. Uh, Mary has come to Jesus using her relationship as his mother to get his attention. And Jesus uses the moment to clue her in to a new reality. Since last Mary has been with Jesus, things have changed. He's been baptized by John. He's starting to gather a group of disciples who will give witness to who he is and what he's doing. He's begun the task for which he came. It's not just happenstance. He's no longer just Mary's son. She's working under the old framework of their relationship. She's presuming to have an inner track with Jesus. And he just quickly dispels that notion. The coming time for him to reveal himself and his mission can't be forced to save face at a wedding. Uh, this is the first time in the Gospel of John um, that it, we refer to Jesus' hour. I kind of mentioned that in the introduction. Uh, repeated reading and familiarity with this Gospel may make us quickly just jump over 
uh, the point. We kind of get inured to it. Um, but we ought to deliberately ask what he's referring to when he tells um, her here that his hour has not yet come. On face value, uh, it seems an odd response to her statement that there isn't any wine, to say his hour hasn't come. Uh, this won't be the last time Jesus refers to the hour arriving. In every other instance, it's pointing forward to his coming sacrifice um, or acknowledging that the time for that sacrifice has arrived. For example, John writes in chapter 7, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The coming hour refers to both his coming passion, his crucifixion, but also the glorification that would follow. Um, but neither his mother nor his disciples have yet learned what all that means. He hasn't taught on it yet. So as he says, my hour has not come, I'm sure Mary is unclear what to make of this. She doesn't quite understand yet. So back, Jesus recognized a presumption on Mary's part. A lack of understanding about what publicly revealing himself will lead to, and so he politely and gently rebukes her. Mary doesn't have authority over Jesus any longer. Their relationship is no longer mother to son. And family obligations are now going to take second place to those who follow as disciples. This is what we really need to get out of Jesus' response to Mary. Now, the next thing is exemplar. And what we're going to see is Mary, while being rebuked, is actually put forward by John as an example for us to follow. So how do you respond to rebuke, to critique, to pushback? Um, I know I don't always handle it well. I don't respond to it well. Um, even when I know the one who is giving the criticism means well, I tend to still say, who do you think you are? Why are you telling me this? I know my business better than you do. You know, even when I know that they're deep down even right, something wells up within me to rebuke and says, you know, who gave you the right to speak into this? Mary, on the other hand, is exemplary. She's an example of responding to rebuke well. Um, verse 5, we read, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Um, what we should see here is that there's a huge level of trust. Um, Jesus has not actually rejected her request but he has let her know that his manner of honoring her request will be based on his mission, the mission he's been called to. So it will reflect what he's doing. Um, her response is a, a, a humble acceptance of the new situation while fully maintaining confidence in Jesus' power and ability. She's seen Jesus be capable. That's why she asked in the first place. She didn't understand the full ramifications, and Jesus knows and says, I'm going to do something, but not in the way that you think. Short and simple, uh, John is putting forward Mary as an example for us. The relationship she used to have with her first, firstborn has forever changed. Her initial request was motivated wrongly and lacked understanding in its implications, but she still responds humbly and confidently. She's an exemplary disciple recognizing who Jesus is, not just what he can do, but who he is, putting her faith into action and calling others to similar faith and obedience. So we see not just her responding well, we see her calling others to respond well. D.A. Carson says it better and a little bit more succinctly than I can. Um, he writes, in short, in 2-3, 
Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In 2.5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. These two verses, and he means 2.4 through 5, as difficult as they are, help to shape this account of Jesus' first miracle and ensure that the focus is on Jesus' glory, which we'll get to in verse 11. It's on Jesus' glory, not on Mary's, and on the disciples' faith, including Mary's. Uh, it shouldn't go unnoticed here that John never refers to Mary by name. She is but the mother of Jesus. Every time she mentions, he gets mentioned. Uh, this may be nothing more than avoiding overloading of the name Mary. Mary comes up a lot. It's a very common name in first century Judaism, and it's a very common name in the book of John. Um, but I think it's a little bit more than that, especially for somebody who would otherwise seem so prominent. I think John wants us to view Mary through the right lens. Instead of a lofty title, mother of God, you know, something like that, she's to be seen as first a disciple, another follower of Jesus. She has no special power to sway Jesus into action. Her voice does not grant special favor in Jesus' ears. She now approaches Jesus as a follower, not so different from Nathaniel and Philip and Andrew and Peter, not to mention John himself. Beyond that, take her words as not just instruction to those table waiters, but as instruction to you, to me. Do whatever he tells you. Uh, Jesus has the right to command and rebuke us as his people and the power to accomplish everything that is in his will. So it behooves us, when he speaks, to do what he says. We must pursue his call with the same level of humility and faith as Mary. Do whatever he tells you is dripping with experiential knowledge of Jesus' heart and ability, his love and power. So the question is, do we come to Jesus with demands out of line with his mission demanding our own satisfaction? Or do we see Jesus clearly for who he is? And that brings us to point two. We've all received grace upon grace. And we start with the water in verses six and seven. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, uh, said to the servants, not his, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. I'm going to actually get some water myself. So the water jars now stand empty. Um, this Jewish wedding party has done the necessary cleansing rituals prior to the festivities, and so no water remains. Even the most modern interpreter here feels the pull towards allegory. Uh, they find in the water jars a reference to the Mosaic law, the, the purification of, and, and cleanliness practices. Um, even John 1.17, which we did a couple weeks back, says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John has already prepared the, his readers to see this same thing as well. Jesus commands, and the servants follow his instructions. With all the water gone and the command to fill given, the old covenant is, to use a, maybe an American phraseology, it's a lame duck. As Jesus said, his hour has not yet arrived, but it's on the way. Glory will not be found in the Jewish separation and hedging around the law. Instead, it's going to be found in the person and work of Jesus. As Nathaniel declared, and we've already said, Son of God, King of Israel. It's found in the living testimony of the witnesses 
to Jesus' words and deeds, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are the wine of the new covenant. Jesus, the wine of the new covenant. So before we go on, um, why should John comment about the jars being filled to the brim? Um, as we'll see as the story continues, John is making it perfectly clear that there's no trick, no sleight of hand. These aren't partially filled wine jugs that get topped up with water. These aren't, you know, lees, the, the, the bottom part of the wine already stuck there. These are empty jugs filled to the brim with water, and Jesus is going to interact with it all and convert it, change it all. As Jesus commands to the filling of the jars, we, we reach a peak. We've hit the point of climax. But familiarity here, again, might deaden us to what's coming. What we need is to come to this point, reading it as if it were for the first time. Forget that this has been turned into wine already. And come to it as a new person seeing stone water jars and sitting there wondering, what is Jesus doing? What's going on here? And that brings us to wine in verses 8 through 10. He says, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Exceptional wine, says the MC, and, and he's somebody who would know. This isn't just water somebody has a good joke over. It isn't grape juice. It isn't faulty wine. It's not lesser. This is awesome stuff, praiseworthy. Uh, some read the, folk, the story and want to focus on the servant's knowledge, but that isn't really where John is drawing attention. Um, he draws the reader's gaze to the fact that the master of, of the, the master of festivities doesn't know that this wine was just moments ago water of a quite average sort. All that the MC knows, all this master of festivities knows, is that this is good wine. He can testify to that. The, the, the servants can testify to where the wine came from, but the master can testify to the quality. This man isn't even actually from the story aware that a miracle has occurred, but he's well aware of the quality of the wine. Mary had suggested a public unveiling to fix an earthly problem. Jesus has honored her request, but in his own semi-private way for his own purposes. Now, uh, let's hold on. Um, I, I kind of like math. And so we're going to do a little bit of math. Um, in verse 6, we read, when we were talking about water, we read that there were six stone water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I don't know about you. How many people buy their wine in gallons? Doesn't seem like a very good measure of wine to me, but okay, fine. Um, your typical bottle of red, bottle of white, I'm not going to sing any further, um, is also known as a fifth, and that's because it refers to about a fifth of a gallon. So we have six stone water jars, um, each somewhere 20 to 30 gallons. Each gallon is five bottles, so we have six times five times 20 or 30 um, that's about 600 to 900 bottles, to get it in a better perspective, one that you can maybe handle. Um, that's a fairly wide range, 600 to 900. That's a, that's a big difference. Um, but even the low end will likely keep any wedding party well stocked. 
Um, even a Jewish wedding party lasting a whole bunch of days, you know, lasting longer than a, a single day. How would you like to have a wedding party that lasted a week? I like it. I like the idea. You're probably right. All those, uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, these vessels were intended for ritual cleansing. They were a constant reminder, in a sense, of the dangers of defilement. So rather than being about blessing, they were a reminder that things could go really wrong. Um, it could have reminded them about the exile. You know, we experienced that through Esther's eyes. Um, the nation had gone through exile and been kicked out of their land for being unholy, for not properly keeping themselves holy before their God. And so these stone jars are kind of a representation of that. And we see Jesus turn those stone jars into containers for wine, for celebration, for eschatological, end time, Jesus breaking in hope. Uh, if you work through the prepare, I hope you read the passages. Um, I'm not going to do them here, but in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos. Um, those passages, we see a connection between uh, the bounty of wine and oil and meat and the coming hope of restoration for Israel. Uh, the abundance and quality of the wine here remind the reader that just as Nathaniel said, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Shoot of David is here among them, and God's promised salvation is on the horizon. Jesus doesn't utter a word to change the water. He just makes a command. He doesn't need equipment, no fancy glassware, no hydrometers or anything like that, no prayer shawls, no incense, no special clothing. He doesn't even offer a short prayer. He simply imagines, and it's done. Um, if you've read any C.S. Lewis, you might have heard him comment on this passage, um, talking about how Jesus takes what is usually done over the course of seasons, water, rain, seed, producing grapes and fermentation, and he's in a moment executed it in his will. I mean, ultimately here we see exactly what John was portraying in chapter 1, the word without which nothing was made that was made. Gives just a little bit of a taste into what the disciples are experiencing, that already but not yet glory. And that brings us to crisis averted, the third part of the message. Um, this under the, we have seen his glory, and we talk about first place. We now get a taste of the significance of all that's happened up to this point. Most of the, pre, the teaching signs in John have these lengthy discourses after them. John really explains them in depth. And this one, we're really meant to take the miracle much simply on its face. And we'll see that as we read. It says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. If you looked at the bulletin, this is part of the memory verse for the week, the, the John 2.11, this is the first part. Among the deeds which John records, first place goes to this miraculous transformation of water into wine. Uh, John can be divided into two major sections, often referred to as the book of signs, which runs roughly from John 1.19 uh, through 12.50, um, and the book of glory, John 13.1 through 20.31. So the first one is Jesus revealing himself. But not just publicly, not just to everybody. He reveals himself specifically to his disciples. So we see, first, this, this sign directly to his disciples. We see you know, him uh, doing the, the, the bread and 
breaking it out to the 5,000 and talking about himself as the bread of life. These things he reveals himself, and that takes up that first part of the book. And throughout that is littered this idea, my hour has not yet come. They tried to take him, but his hour had not yet come. And we get to the book of glory, and we find the dividing line right at the beginning. In 13.1, John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John gives us goalposts. In the first miracle, we see him go, my hour has not yet come. We get to 13, and everything following, Jesus is saying, my hour has come. Everything now is walking to that moment that is very, very, and you can actually see if you kind of, we talk about it as it's a long period of time in the book of glory, but short chapters, and then you get that last little bit, 13 through 20, is like time magnified, but it's, his hour has come. So the first sign sets us up on the right path to understand all of the sign miracles Jesus does in John. Every one of them points to Jesus as the God who is present. They focus on his coming glorification, his coming crucifixion, but John does something different from the other gospel writers and really wants to focus in on who Jesus is. It's not just what he's going to do that's significant, but it is ultimately who he is. So we reach 13.1, and we know that Jesus has been on task the whole time. He's seen his hour coming and is responding to it in the way he acts. And that brings us to glory revealed, the end of verse 11. It says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested, he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. In 150, uh, chapter 150, Jesus had remarked that they would see greater things than his ability to perceive thought. I don't know, people don't maybe think about it, but thought is not actually an easy thing to record. I mean, a lot of us think about, I don't know, if you read science fiction, you probably have like robots, and we think, oh, it's easy, we can just make a thinking machine. It's not that easy, actually. Um, And just because we have similar thoughts doesn't mean they're encoded the same way. So for Jesus to perceive thought is not just something to sneer at. It's almost like, why is this not his first miracle? Thought is an amazingly powerful thing. But anyway, uh, John 2, 1, 11 is a first taste of those greater things. And he's going to continue through the rest of the book. Um, Brian gives me a lot of flack, mostly in jest, um, about my love for Matthew. In all fairness, uh, the themes of Matthew, um, just they just, what? The themes of Matthew just resonate with me. Uh, they, they always have. Matthew speaks powerly, powerfully of the kingdom of God, um, the cost of discipleship, what the church is, ultimately. And those resonate with me. But John, on the other hand, experiences the same events and comes at them from a different angle. He paints a, a picture for us, God present among us in all his glory in the person of Jesus. Um, He sees the spirit empowering the church. He sees the importance of testimony and faith passed down from one generation of disciples to the next. And thank God in his wisdom, we have both of these perspectives uh, and, and more. It's all well and good to recognize 
uh, the power of the kingdom at work, but it's essential to recognize the king of kings in all his glory. It's important to reflect on how discipleship is not glitter and praise, that there's a real cost to it, but it's just as important to realize the central place, the central place of rightly placed faith in discipleship, not just in a body of teaching, not just into a community, but into a person, into a God, into a Lord who demands our attention. Okay, so and that brings us to the final verse. This is really a connecting verse. You could house it in this section. You could house it in the next. Depending on your translation, you might see it under a different heading. But verse 12, I've called it heading to Jerusalem. Um, and what we do is we finally read of Jesus heading with family and disciples to Capernaum. Um, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So he is heading to Capernaum. Why Capernaum? Capernaum is on the way to Jerusalem, where he's going to celebrate the Passover. So while we've just we focused on this as just one sort of self-contained story, this one episode, John is actually not just stringing together separate, disparate stories. Um, in chapter 2, he especially ties together two huge events. Um, his revealing himself to his disciples at a wedding feast, which we've just dealt with, and his arrival in the Jerusalem temple to reveal himself before the whole nation. The first, as we have seen, is a small pointer to God's designs from the beginning and a slightly larger pointer to the coming marriage feast between Christ and his church. But the second calls us to reflect on what God's presence among us means. I'm not going to go any further in it, because that would take away from next week. Um, but I do want to encourage you to read these two together as a whole. Uh, because while we have focused this morning um, on the word made flesh and present, this connection brings out another of John's emphasis, which is that when Jesus is present, people respond. They can respond in faith, or they can respond with something else. Some believe, others seek to kill him. Some draw near, and others separate from him. And that's important to John. So, what are we to do with all of this? And the number one thing is to recognize Jesus is worthy of all our worship. If we read this passage and come away without seeing Jesus as the central focus of it, we will have missed the point of the passage. He's the God who celebrates with his people. All the power of creation was walking among the disciples. That's what we're meant to read. And now the Spirit invites us to trust John's testimony and to trust this same Jesus. Um, as readers, as disciples, we're to be tuned in, watching for the moment when Jesus will say, my hour has come. The wine is done. It's time to drink. Um, his miracle here points to who he is and the salvation he's bringing. These few verses are a glimpse, just a glimmer into the present glory of Jesus and how that glory will be revealed in his death and resurrection and all that entails. So what does John want from us? What does it look like to be a good reader of the Gospel of John and especially this episode in chapter 2? And I want to say, bring out two things. The first is that, and I already said it, we need to be like Mary. We need to receive rebuke well and trust the Jesus we know. 
we need to align our life and expectations around the Jesus revealed in the word, um, rather than popular culture. Culture says a whole bunch of things about Jesus that are not trustworthy. We need to put our focus on the Jesus of scripture, not the Jesus that is happy-go-lucky and willing to meet us wherever we are and call no change among us, who would never rebuke us because he's perfectly happy with us continuing in sin. We need to find the real Jesus that scripture gives us. So we need to be like Mary. And then finally, Mary, as one of the disciples, we need to be like the disciples. We need to be present where Jesus is so that we can see his glory revealed. And that means primarily being in his body. Um, We are not meant to be disciples on the solo, separate from his body. We're meant to be in community. That's where we're going to see God reveal himself in the person of Jesus. We are, in fact, his body. If we expect to see him doing mighty deeds, we need to be among his body. And then, so we, we need to hear his words. We need to experience his work. And then we need to respond in faith when he invites us to come. And so, believer, unbeliever, this morning, come to Jesus. Jesus is inviting you. He's saying, this is who I am. Come. With that, let me go ahead and pray, and we'll move to the next last song. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us um, spiritual food. You give us bread, you give us wine, and you invite us to come and be part of your people. You invite us to a marriage feast in which we get to revel and celebrate forever, to have the deepest joy possible. God, help us to consider that as something valuable, as something to seek after, something more precious than the temporary things that go on in our life that take up so much of our mental space. Father, we ask that you would make this body a body that longs to see you move, that is not content, not content to see life be okay, well, and happy, but longs for you to powerfully reveal yourself in in salvation, in saving work. So, Father, we, we thank you for this opportunity to read and be in your word this morning, and we ask you to use it as the week progresses. Uh, to draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.